You are listening to the GMO Truth Podcast, straight out of the Walk a Mile Project, brought to you by nonprofit film company Change the World Films. Tune in here to discover the truth and change the world together. This is Eric Battersby welcoming you back to the GMO Truth Podcast here with GMO Truth number nine. First off, thanks to all of you who have voiced your support over the past several months for what we're working on here at the Walk a Mile Project and particularly the GMO Truth Podcast. I just came through a rough stretch personally, dealing with a lot of rough stuff going on all at once, most recently with a close family member being diagnosed with cancer, ironically, considering our glyphosate cancer research. So just when I thought you'd never see us hit the pause button again like we did last year while I was in crazy research mode, we did indeed wind up hitting it again. But Seriously, a big thanks to the thousands of you who listened to this podcast, and thanks to everyone who emailed me asking about its status as well. I really, really appreciate it. Podcast number 10, which continues our research on glyphosate, is just around the corner here. It's actually almost done, but GMO labeling once again jumped to the forefront because of the topsy-turvy mess that's been happening with the U.S. Senate. We just hit a legislative crossroads where the bomb some senators were trying to drop on Vermont's labeling law was actually stopped from going off at least for now, but this issue will remain somewhat time-sensitive until a a final GMO labeling law is agreed upon in the Senate. So if GMO labeling is something you're passionate about, the time to act is absolutely right now. As always, you can just head over to the walkamileproject.com homepage and click on the big Take Action box near the top of the page to see what clear-cut actions you can take that we've identified so far via our our research, etc. And if you want to make a very strong impact on a more regular basis, on that same page, you can also subscribe to the Walk a Mile Project. It's, it's less than $5 to subscribe. You can get early access to these podcasts, some other fun perks, and, and your tax-deductible subscription donation goes directly to the work we're doing here at walkamileproject.com, not into some black hole where you never see your charitable contributions at work. That is the great thing about Walk a Mile by design. You can visit our site 24-7 to actually see what your donation creates, to know that you actually help make all this happen including the GMO Truth Podcast. Okay, so today we're answering one of the GMO question sequences we launched last year, and that question is, do American citizens deserve the right to know if there are genetically modified organisms in their food? We've been following it with the tag and hashtag right to know, and you can see our previous documentation on that at walkamileproject.com slash tag slash right to know, and that's dashes right dash to dash no. There's also a link to it right on the podcast page itself. I will say, I do wish we had more of our research complete before answering this question, particularly on the science side of the equation, and then on exactly how the FDA decided to regulate GMOs in the first place back in the 1990s. But time is short on this labeling situation, as July 1st looms large for the Vermont labeling law to fully take effect, and I'm still very confident that we know more than enough right now to answer this question with authority. And honestly, After witnessing disturbing behavior from several members of our House of Representatives and Senate over the past year or so, it's obvious that our government isn't working very diligently for transparency during its own hearings, let alone with transparency and labeling. So you know something needs to be done here. Now, if you've been reading up on some of the arguments for or against GMO labeling, you can expect to find a bit of a different take here today with the GMO truth. I'm well aware of both sides. And you'll hear a lot of talk on safety, on consumers' right to know regardless, on the cost of labeling, and you'll also hear complaints that a label will create an unfair stigma for genetic engineering. 
Well, we're focusing on some bigger picture items here that really show just how poorly GMOs were implemented in the first place, and then we'll basically use that as a compass to help navigate the GMO labeling situation. The point of the Walk a Mile project is to ask the right questions and sometimes to dig in places where no one else has yet. So expect to hear a different take on this today and expect to be more well-armed for discussing this topic, talking to your senators, etc. One note before we dive in, we're going over a lot of information today. You may need more than one listen through to get everything down, but to help with that, I'm also putting the clear, concise summary of our conclusions at the bottom of the podcast page itself. This will help you with contacting your senators as well if you really want to get involved. Okay, there are two main parts to our answer on this labeling question. In the first part, we'll look at the big roadblock to labeling, according to Congress, which is the potential costs associated with it. Then in the second part, we'll look at a core aspect of America's economy that should have had a huge impact on GMO labeling from the start, yet you've probably never even heard it mentioned before, which is why the GMO truth is here. All right, first off, let's talk about the cost of labeling. In last summer's House of Representatives hearing, they referenced a study that estimated GMO labeling will cost $500 per family. The study was conducted by Cornell University professor William Lesser, who stated that if GMO labeling was required in New York, a family of four would pay $500 more per year in grocery bills. It specifically focused on New York, not the entire country. But still, sounds pretty crazy, right? I mean, $500 more per family just for some labels? Well, there's a reason it sounds crazy. The Washington Post fact-checker investigated this study and its claim, giving it what they call the Pinocchio test, where they essentially rate a claim's truthfulness. It goes on a scale of one to four Pinocchios, where one Pinocchio is mostly true, and four Pinocchios is considered, as they put it, whoppers, basically a complete lie. After they completed fact-checking, the Post gave Professor Lester's study three Pinocchios, which according to their scale, indicates the following. Significant factual error and or obvious contradictions. This gets into the realm of mostly false. But it could include statements which are technically correct, such as based on official government data, but are taken so out of context as to be very misleading. Now, unfortunately, the House of Representatives didn't care about fact-checking as they gave full credence to this study when discussing the GMO labeling situation last summer. Fast forward to February 2016, and oh look, The Corn Refiners Association published a new study on GMO labeling costs as well, amazingly enough, just as Kansas Senator Pat Roberts was about to propose the latest GMO labeling bill. And this new study ups that earlier figure from $500 per family to a ridiculous $1,050 per family, again, simply to add GMO labels to our food. Obviously, the new 2016 study was conducted by an organization that would absolutely love to prevent any GMO labeling because the Corn Refiners Association clearly represents the corn industry where 90% plus of American grown corn is now GMO. Well, it didn't take long for places like Consumers Union, part of Consumer Reports, to absolutely rip the new study to shreds. Here's what Gene Halloran, Director of Food Policy Initiatives for Consumers Union, had to say. This new study, like previous industry-funded studies, makes a number of unreasonable assumptions to come to its conclusions, including the idea that companies will reformulate all their products to remove GE ingredients. There is simply no basis for these assumptions. The fact is that GMO labeling would have a negligible impact on food prices. Campbell's is moving towards labeling GMOs and has said they don't plan to raise their products' prices. So we've got studies flying around with different dollar figures associated to them, and multiple sources clearly disputing those numbers. So what's the truth here? And how does it tie in with GMO labeling in the Senate? 
Well, here's the deal. On Tuesday, March 1st, 2016, the Senate Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry held a meeting to consider Senator Roberts' legislation. One person who spoke up in the meeting was Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa, who specifically mentioned that Corn Refiners Association study as if it were pure fact. She stood up proudly as a champion for the very economically challenged constituents she represents in her district, Montgomery County, Iowa, and here's what she had to say. A very, very small rural community. There's about 10,000 of us folks in Montgomery County. The median household income in Montgomery County is $44,281. That's household. That's not per person. That's household. I live in a very economically challenged area. These are my neighbors and these are my family. And studies have been shown to uh, increase the cost of our food dollars uh, if we are to go ahead and implement Vermont's law, and as that would affect consumers nationwide, to a tune of about $1,050 per household. We're already stretching our incomes pretty thin and trying to stretch those food dollars. That means a lot to these families in Montgomery County, just as it does all across the state of Iowa, and I know in all of our other states as well. Once again, we see misleading statements made by our government officials referencing questionable industry-funded information and key dollar figures which hold a ton of weight to their arguments with no mention of the other side or of the fact-checking done or other organizations that steadfastly refute that information. In fact, Senator Ernst even makes no mention of the previous study where it was only $500. She makes no mention of the Washington Post fact-checking on the topic and of course she says nothing about the Consumers Union research. She simply touts the word of the Corn Refiners Association, easily the most biased of any source in the mix right now, and with the most vested interest as well. But perhaps even worse than that, in all of the hearings, both the Senate and the House avoided mentioning a key 2011 study done by our own USDA. And that study looked at the impact of labeling on consumer behavior and market prices in countries that did mandate GMO labels. According to that study, even large warning labels on the front of packages aren't guaranteed to attract consumer attention. Here's a quote. Evidence suggests that consumers are just as likely to overlook GMO labels as other labels. This is in part because food labels contain a lot of information, and consumers tend to look for labels that matter to them. Even if they do look at every single piece of information on a label, they have a hard time prioritizing what matters the most. That's a pretty logical conclusion there. And it's one that I'll bet the majority of us, including myself as an avid label reader, will agree on. You'll look for what you know about and what's important to you. So to assume that GMOs will vanish from the marketplace simply because a few new words now exist on a label? Come on. So when it comes to this cost concern, there are studies. That's great. But the clearest response to this concern, which I will say was at least brought up in the Senate Ag meeting, about five minutes before everyone cast their already decided upon votes, by the way, the clearest response came from Campbell Soup. When Campbell stepped in earlier this year to announce GMO labeling of their products at no extra cost to customers, all bets were basically off. And why? Because someone finally did the real due diligence and said, hey, this is completely feasible. It's the right thing to do, so enough of the BS. We won't reformulate our products. We'll label them. It's not that crazy. But guess what? We already knew this. I talked about it in GMO Truth number 8 last year when it was crystal clear after we actually did the research and then just logically looked at the equation in front of us. I won't talk about that here, but if you want all the details, 
just check out podcast number eight, where we first started talking about labeling. And one other important thing, let's not forget that 64 other countries around the planet already have labeling. And some of it comes from the same American companies that are balking at labeling here in their own country. The majority of the population on planet Earth already has access to labeling. And just like the USDA's 2011 study said, GMO products are still purchased at the grocery store. It's not like they went away because of the labels. So the entire expensive labeling house of cards that's been built up here over the last several months, it sits on the overzealous fear that if you put a label on this stuff, a huge contingent of people who care about GMOs but didn't before will all of a sudden appear out of nowhere simply because there are four new words on a can. Go pick up any food item right now and tell me you read and care about every single word on its label. None of us do, which I illustrated very clearly on the last cast when discussing labels on diet sodas. That's a perfect example of words on our labels only mattering to the people who care about that specific language. It would take an epic GMO awareness campaign and one that unequivocally proved GMOs actually cause harm before words on a label would make that kind of a huge difference. It's not something that appears imminent, although if we unequivocally prove that here at the Wagamala Project, that may change quickly. But we're not even into that phase of the documentary yet, so I can't even begin to speculate there. Okay, so guess what? When industry and policymakers join forces like this to stop labeling, to stop transparency, it just makes it look like they have something to hide, and like biotechnology has something to hide. One senator even mentioned this at the ag meeting, basically saying, just label the stuff already and stop acting like you're hiding something. With that in mind, let's wrap up part one, our debunking of the labeling costs and consequences, where ironically, a sector that loves to point fingers at GMO activists as fearmongers is presently engaged in a fear-mongering campaign itself to financially scare everyone away from GMO labeling. And again, that's fear-mongering to the tune of $1,050 per family every year. Unfortunately for them, it's clear their costs will be minimal to enact GMO labeling at a federal level, especially when, right after the Senate failed to pass Roberts' legislation, General Mills then joined Campbell's in announcing its own GMO labeling. But before we move to part two of today's podcast, let's go over a couple of very important caveats regarding labeling. First off, there is certainly a concern for companies if a federal standard is not enacted, and then instead individual state laws rule the land. If all 50 states had their own labeling requirements, that would be an epic pain in the butt for manufacturers, and I don't think anyone feels that is a good idea. Yes, it does happen on occasion, like with different labels for bottle deposits that can vary between states, but that's long been built into the cost of doing business, for companies that use those types of bottles. There's no doubt that a proper labeling standard is what the U.S. really needs. And second, in GMO Truth number eight, I mentioned that by far the best way to label GMOs is to put a more meaningful label on products, a label that indicates exactly which GMO exists in the food, like BT corn, Roundup Ready soy, etc. However, ideal as that labeling solution would be, during our latest research, I discovered that differentiating our supply to that level could be somewhat problematic under our agriculture's current infrastructure. And it's funny, the reason I discover this is that the pro-GMO camp keeps making the argument that we need to differentiate the food supply to handle even a blanket label like is currently being proposed, which simply says, contains genetically engineered ingredients, or something similar. I've found multiple sources throwing this argument out there that we need to differentiate the food supply, and that then skyrockets their cost estimates for labeling. But we'd only need that extra layer of intricacy in place if we were going to label by specific GE trait. 
And as great as that would be, it's not feasible without some bigger changes. It doesn't apply, however, when using blanket language like contains genetically engineered ingredients. At one point prior to all of these hearings, I might have seriously questioned whether or not GMO labeling was the right choice if it could only be a more generic version like that, like contains genetically engineered ingredients. But after watching the hearings and sifting through studies and data, there's clearly smoke here when it comes to GMOs. I'm not sure how big the fire is that we're going to find, but the way our politicians are behaving is alarming. And that's enough for us to say, hey, we need to err on the side of caution here. And speaking of the way our politicians are behaving, that is a perfect segue into the second part of today's podcast. When it comes to the economic side of this whole situation, look, America is supposed to thrive on a free market, a free market that determines winners and losers, something Republicans tend to tout even more than Democrats. So you know something is up when Republicans are spearheading some free market killing anti-GMO labeling legislation, but they're really just continuing a 20-plus year culture in our government that's been suppressing the free market when it comes to biotechnology, and actually an even older culture that's been suppressing the free market when it comes to U.S. agriculture in general. So the problem here is this. GMOs have never been fully subjected to free market forces. But before we talk about why that is, let's take a look for a moment at the big picture of the free market in American farming. So you can see just how shrewd it really was for Monsanto to take the market path that they did. Now, I just mentioned an older government culture that's been known to suppress the free market. And what I was referring to there is the legislative culture behind government subsidies. Government subsidies quietly control which crops are grown in this country, essentially creating some areas of farming that, much like we saw with banking, may be considered too big to fail. Prime examples of this are corn and soy two staple crops in America that are closely tied to factory farming since they're largely used for animal feed. And if we don't have enough, for better or worse, all the meat we eat in America can take a hit. And this is a big reason why Monsanto chose the crops they did when first creating GMOs. A clear part of Monsanto's plan was to target the biggest crops. Thanks to these farm subsidies existing since the Great Depression, the biggest crops in America, corn and soy, are the ones receiving the most government support. Yes, the government largely dictates our farm outputs. True story. If you want to learn more about subsidies, the late Peter Jennings did a great investigation on the subject back in 2004, and I put a link to that video on the podcast page here at walkmileproject.com. I highly recommend watching it after you're done here. Okay, so when it comes to corn and soy in general, there hasn't been a free market in this country for decades. By design, subsidies completely upend the free market concept essentially encouraging farmers to grow one crop over another. So you really just need to understand Monsanto's targets here when they first tried to crack the GMO code. If you look at subsidies from 1995 to 2014, and remember GMO started in 1996, farmers growing corn, wheat, cotton, and soy were the top four crop subsidy recipients during that time. And all four of those crops mentioned have had GMO varieties at one point, although wheat currently does not. And since GMO corn stepped into the picture, corn itself, already by far the number one crop in America, has taken over another 16 million acres of farmland, according to the most recent data from 2012. It was grown on over 87 million acres of land that year. Remember that, over 87 million acres were dedicated to corn as of 2012. And the only crop even close was soy, with 76 million acres. In fact, acre-wise, Corn, soy, and then wheat absolutely dwarf all other crops grown in America. 
and excluding forage land used for hay and, and things like that. Meanwhile, almost every other crop we grow has seen its acreage and output reduced during the same time frame, as more and more farmers were driven to the key subsidized crops of GMO corn and GMO soy. So understand, it is crystal clear where biotech set its sights. They wisely, from a pure financial standpoint, targeted the crops we grow the most. And we grow the most of them because they're subsidized by the government. They went for crops that would deliver the greatest market penetration and would receive the most support from the government if things went south. Monsanto knew that if they could get farmers of these crops to start buying in, they would then wield a huge influence on our agricultural system. And it worked amazingly well. When now over 90% of our two biggest crops, corn and soy, are the GMO variety, that's pretty much a slam dunk. But we've really only been talking about corn and soy as subsidies in general. Where does all this free market talk come into play specifically regarding GMOs? Well, let's talk about how the free market is supposed to work. Normally, when you're creating a new product for the marketplace, you need to clearly show that new product's value to your potential customers so they want to buy it. Every time a new Apple or Samsung phone comes out, you see TV commercials immediately touting what makes that new phone the latest and greatest. Now, in the case of GMOs, it's a little different proposition because the first-line customer of biotech companies like Monsanto is the farmer. It's not the grocery shopper. But a crucial difference here is that back in the early 90s, Monsanto 100% knew GMOs would be controversial. They knew this wasn't just any ordinary new product, and they knew it should be handled with kid gloves. From a logical and ethical standpoint, the right way to handle GMOs was to sell both farmers and consumers on why they all should want GMOs in the food supply. They weren't just adding a little beet coloring to candy canes here. This was a big change, and the opportunity was right there for the company to scream from the rooftops exactly why their rounder ready corn was so amazing. They could have easily done the right thing from the start. But as we now know from our earlier research and previous podcasts, Monsanto just really has a hard time doing the right thing for some reason, which contributes to that whole they have something to hide mantra. Regardless though, they did take care of part of the marketing equation by gradually selling more and more farmers on using GMOs. If they hadn't, 90% of corn and soy wouldn't be GMO right now. So they certainly sold farmers on it, and you can be as anti-GMO as you want, but the fact is, Farmers all over America are growing GMO corn and soy on millions of acres of land. So Monsanto was obviously doing something right, or that wouldn't be the case. What they also needed to do, however, was sell the consumer on GMOs, specifically on both the new added value of the products and on the safety of the products. Because, yes, you can be as pro-GMO as you want, but the fact remains, this is new science. You're talking about a brand new and much more elaborate method of genetic manipulation. And look, when you say the words genetic manipulation in the same sentence as food, people will be prone to freaking out. Instead of doing things the right way and openly addressing that perception from the start, Monsanto went all in on pushing a regulatory concept known as substantial equivalence, something we're actually investigating now as one of our other research sequences here at Walk a Mile. And although we haven't wrapped that sequence up yet, we don't need to go too far down the rabbit hole to know this probably wasn't the right way to release GMOs into the world. And that's the second piece to our GMO labeling argument here. GMOs have never been fully subjected to free market forces thanks to the zero transparency that resulted from the adoption of substantial equivalence. All right, substantial equivalence. So here's what you need to know about that term. First off, way back in 1992, substantial equivalence was declared as policy by the FDA in a document titled Statement of Policy, Foods Derived from New Plant Varieties. Of course, I've attached the link to it on the podcast page. 
Now, here's what the policy says, and it is kind of a crazy mouthful, so please bear with me as I read through this. The scientific concepts described in this guidance section are consistent with the concepts of substantial equivalence of new foods discussed in a document under development by the group of national experts on safety and biotechnology of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. This guidance section is also consistent with the principles for food safety assessment discussed in the report of a joint food and agricultural organization slash World Health Organization consultation. Okay, I would not expect you to understand a word of that uh, on one listen. It's a lot easier to read it, to, to gauge what they're talking about. But let me read this one, the first sentence again, because it's important. The scientific concepts described in this guided section are consistent with the concepts of substantial equivalence of new foods discussed in a document under development by the group of national experts. And I'll, I'll cut it off there because if you're like me and, and you did, you were able to absorb all that, you probably laughed out loud a little when you heard that the FDA was basing policy on a document that's quote unquote under development. That's... <laughs> That's a huge red flag right out the gate. But the document they refer to wound up being called Safety Evaluation of Foods Derived by Modern Biotechnology. And yes, by that Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD organization that they mentioned. There's also a link to that document on the podcast page. Okay, sorry for probably confusing the heck out of you right there, but let's dig into this and make things a little more clear. So early in that document, the OECD describes substantial equivalence like this. The concept of substantial equivalence embodies the idea that existing organisms used as food or as a source of food can be used as the basis for comparison when assessing the safety of human consumption of a food or food component that has been modified or is new. Then in the document's conclusion, they summarize the use of substantial equivalence saying, the main conclusion of this report is as follows. If a new food or food component is found to be substantially equivalent to an existing food or food component, it can be treated in the same manner with respect to safety. No additional safety concerns would be expected. Now at the very end of this document, there's a list of all the participants, and one of those participants just happens to be Dr. James Mariansky from the FDA itself. If you've been listening to the GMO Truth, you've heard from Dr. Mariansky before. He openly admitted that pushing the substantial equivalence concept was based on politics, not on science. We've played this clip before on an earlier show, but since it's really short and just extremely powerful, let's play it again. Basically, the government had taken a decision that it would not create new laws, that it felt there were already sufficient laws in place that had enough authority for the agencies to deal with new technologies. That means the White House asks the agency to write a policy where GMO should not be submitted to a specific regulatory regime, but it's not based on scientific data. It's a political decision? Yes, it was a political decision. It was a very broad decision that didn't apply to just foods. It applied to all products of biotechnology. So understand, substantial equivalence essentially prevented GMOs from being treated like a food additive or even like a drug when it comes to testing requirements. And an argument can be made that either of those classifications would have made much more sense than just using substantial equivalence as the go-to regulatory solution. If I ask for proof of safety and efficacy on a new drug, I can see clinical trials done on humans. But what do I see for GMOs? Well, nothing. Because taking the substantial equivalence route also meant no testing would be required on humans. 
Yes, you heard that right. We have done zero testing on humans, despite the widespread penetration of GMOs into our food supply, where, yes, humans do indeed eat them every single day. But because the FDA decided to take this route, GMOs were not held to the same rigorous standards as other new substances. And it paved the way for the regulation we know today. Yes, it started well over two decades ago, but make no mistake, substantial equivalence helped bring us to the point we are at right now with the Senate. Now, even with these lower testing requirements for GMO crops, this lesser burden of proof, so to speak, we keep hearing about a scientific consensus on GMO safety. And in particular, there's constant mention of hundreds of studies that prove GMOs are safe. And if GMOs are clearly 100% safe, then substantial equivalents might not really matter anyway, right? If they're 100% safe, then maybe the FDA was right to use substantial equivalents back in the early 90s. But here's the thing. When I first started discussing GMOs online publicly for the Walk Mile Project, almost right out the gate, I ran into a very, very pro-GMO advocate who spent a fair amount of time trying to rip other people's perspectives to shreds, regardless of their merit. And yes, he may have very well been a shill, I don't know. But in the course of our conversations, as he realized what I was working on, he proudly declared that well over 1,700 studies had been done absolutely proving GMO safety. So of course, I immediately asked him for the data, and he sent me a spreadsheet listing 1,787 studies on GMOs. So there you go, 1,787 studies. Safety proven, right? Well, we have this pesky habit of actually checking facts and data here on the GMO Truth, so I decided to look at a random sampling of 10 studies on the list just to see what angles the researchers were taking and what conclusions were being drawn. And lo and behold, two of those 10 studies actually questioned GMO safety instead of touting it. Not exactly the undeniable proof my YouTube comments buddy was selling. And that's flaw number one. Now this spreadsheet, which is still being passed around and I believe is now at about 2,000 studies, has one other serious, serious flaw in it, however, and it ties us right back to substantial equivalence. GMOs hit the marketplace in 1996. That means, obviously, that their safety needed to be proved prior to 1996. You don't release something this big into the environment and the food supply without some serious due diligence. Even the ultra-pro-GMO side recognizes the importance of this because they keep referencing the 2000 studies spreadsheet as the end-all be-all of GMO safety. They know it is important. But there's just a slight problem here. The earliest that any of the studies noted in that spreadsheet was completed was the year 2002. That's six years after GMOs were already introduced to the marketplace. We kind of need to see the studies that were done prior to 1996, not ones that started trickling in six years after market penetration. For one thing, that timing creates the potential for a huge testing bias because if you're Monsanto or any of the other GMO companies, you have a big, big vested interest in those studies coming out in your favor. If they don't come out in your favor, you've got an epic problem on your hands. Like say, PCBs, the sequel. So showing us testing from six years after a product's launch, not so good. And if you come across someone preaching about the studies, feel free to toss those two points right back at them immediately. Number one, not all the studies actually tout GMO safety. And number two, the studies started six years after GMOs already entered our food supply. Okay, now there's one last thing that gets thrown into the mix with all the GMO safety talk, and it is the final piece to our investigation on whether or not we deserve GMO labeling in America. You hear this mentioned all the time. It was even brought up by State Rep. Marsha Blackburn to start off one of the House of Representatives hearings. 
It is the argument that we've been doing genetic modifications for centuries, and these GMOs are no different than anything we've done before. It is a key pro-GMO argument, and it's one that's essentially repeated over and over again. But here's the little tiny problem with that argument. It's not true. In, in fact, it's literally a blatant lie. We have already wrapped up our line of research on that question, and it's all made crystal clear in a new PDF report we just released, which you can download for free over at walkmileproject.com. It's even on the homepage if you want to look for it. Answering that question in detail is way too much to cover on a GMO labeling podcast, but the bottom line of it is completely clear. Prior to the 20th century, no, we never did any genetic modifications of this nature or complexity. It is a new science, period. Now, the 20th century did bring us another controversial genetic modification technique known as mutagenesis, which you could just as easily question along the same lines as GMOs, even though you've probably never heard of it. But prior to that, we did nothing along the lines of modern GMOs. And even that's significantly different. This whole we've been doing it for centuries defense is a blatantly deceitful statement. And if you hear anyone make that argument, please feel free to forward a copy of your PDF their way to clear that up. If we're going to make headway on the GMO controversy, we need to stop all the lying from all directions. All right, we are almost ready to reveal our second GMO truth from the Walk a Mile Project. But before we do, let's wrap up the whole free market issue by tying right back into what has very sadly become a just ridiculous pattern of lying from our politicians. With these two federal GMO labeling bills, we've watched our policymakers try to pass important legislation under false pretenses. Now that you're armed with the truth when it comes to GMOs in the free market, I want you to listen to what Senator Pat Roberts said in his opening statement at the Senate Ag Committee meeting where he first put forth the legislation to ban mandatory GMO labeling. Simply put, the legislation before us provides an immediate and, compre and comprehensive solution to the state-by-state -state patchwork, patchwork of labeling laws. It sets national uniformity based on science for labeling food or seeds that are genetically engineered. This allows the value chain from farmer to processor to shipper to retailer to consumer to continue as the free market intended. Honestly, it's just sad. For Senator Roberts to so cavalierly mention the words free market in his opening remarks like that, specifically related to GMOs, well, to put it bluntly, he's full of crap. The words free market shouldn't even be thought of in this situation, let alone spoken aloud. And once again, we see one of our policymakers starting off a key meeting with a blatant lie. And look, hiding something in our food that obviously a large contingent of people are concerned about, that detracts from the free market. As it has for the past two decades, it doesn't help preserve it. So when it comes to free market, Senator Roberts, I don't think those words mean what you think they mean. And for our listeners, even without everything we discussed on today's podcast, you probably knew already that a free market is not undercut when people know what they're buying. It's enhanced. So that's the big takeaway here when it comes to GMOs in the free market. Back in the 1990s, GMOs were much more controversial than your average new product, and they should have been handled with appropriate sensitivity and transparency from the start. Just like when another new product hits the market, the onus is on the product creator to sell the world on the benefits and, if applicable, on the safety of that product. Full disclosure, that is what gives you a free market. Samsung didn't create the Galaxy phone series and then secretly replace all of our iPhones with it when we weren't looking. 
That's not how it works. But that's basically what happened with our corn and soy and sugar beets. And yes, this is a little different because Monsanto's first line customer is actually the farmer. That is most definitely true. But guess what? If we don't eat the food the farmer grows, or if we don't eat the animals fed the food that the farmer grows, then that food does not succeed in the free market. And in order to gauge whether or not it should succeed, the marketplace needs to know what the product is. Consumers need to know when they're eating it. And don't tell me that the farmer should be responsible for selling consumers on GMOs. That is most definitely not a farmer's job. They're simply growing what works for them and what's been approved for planting by the USDA. So it's the exact opposite of what Senator Roberts said in his opening remarks regarding the free market. And it's what each of you listening to this podcast should call or email your senator about right now because they will have no ethical rebuttal to what you're telling them. All right, I know this has been a long podcast, but it is now time to officially answer the question at hand, which again is, do American citizens deserve the right to know if there are genetically modified organisms in their food? And here's the GMO truth. From the very beginning, thanks to subpar behavior from Monsanto and our regulatory agencies, there's been a lack of transparency on GMOs. Instead of treating this new technology with the sensitivity it obviously needed, instead of proving to all of us that their new crop technology was not only a boon to farming, but was safe for animals, the environment, and humans alike, they all combined to shelter GMOs from the American free market, permitting large quantities of the most subsidized crops in America to become almost exclusively GMO. Now United States citizens are making it known that they want labeling. And all this prior negligence, combined with deceitful, misleading words from our present Congress, make it clear that we need transparency. We need to know that there is nothing to hide. In other words, the work that should have been done back in the 1990s instead needs to be done here in 2016. And the fear-mongering over food costs is unsubstantiated if a mandatory national labeling standard is put into place. Labeling currently exists in 64 other countries, some of it done by U.S. companies that can easily do the same here in the States. Campbell's and General Mills have already pledged to label their products in the U.S. For the companies who spent millions of dollars on efforts to suppress the free market, to suppress transparency, to suppress labeling, it is time to introduce your GMOs to the free market where they can win or lose on their own merit. So yes, American citizens do deserve to know if there are genetically modified organisms in their food. And there you have it. Now, I certainly encourage you to contact your senator. And remember, on the podcast page at wakamalaproject.com, I've written some suggestions and clear arguments for you to state when making a call or sending an email. And these are arguments that your senator will have very little ability to say anything against. That's what happens when you hit him with the GMO truth. And that wraps up GMO Truth Podcast number nine. Thanks for listening, everyone. So glad to be back. I cannot even put it into words. And the GMO Truth will return ASAP with the first of our two-part EPA interview segments as we work to wrap up our investigation on glyphosate. Until then, keep an eye out for our new GMO Truth QuickCast that are launching on iTunes as well, where you can listen to a much more condensed version of the podcast and get the GMO Truth in just about 10 minutes. All right, that wraps it up. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Walk a Mile Project's GMO Truth Podcast. To stay up to date on new podcasts or to learn more and join in on our GMO investigation and upcoming feature film, 
Head over to walkamileproject.com and sign up for free anytime, 24-7. And that is how we discover the truth and change the world together. Dance when you walk through that door.